0: Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 74 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known as DCU. And since their beginnings as the credit union for the employees of Digital Equipment Corporation back in 1979, DCU has never lost sight of its roots of being a not-for-profit financial cooperative owned by and operated by and for their members. And a lot of things can change in 40 years, but some things remain constant like DCU's unwavering commitment to provide exceptional service and to make a positive impact in the communities where their members live and work. And no matter what their members' unique goals are, they are committed to helping them the only way they know how, the DCU way, which consists of three simple philosophies that guide each and every DCU team member. People come first, do the right thing, and make a difference. And so far this year, DCU has donated to 119 food banks and pantries with total donations over $2.1 million. And they've passionately supported numerous school programs, hospitals, veterans organizations, and other worthy causes that are doing their part to help individuals and families in need. Giving back is central to what they do. And I know because DCU is always there. When I ask them for help, they say yes. Find out more at dcu.org. Okay, my guest this week on the podcast is the one and only Adrian Ballou. Now you may recognize his name as a member of King Crimson, but his career, well, Googling it only tells half the story. Adrian is a multi-instrumentalist. He's a singer, a songwriter, a producer, and a guitar god. He's released 20 solo albums and was the frontman singer, co-writer, and guitarist for King Crimson for 30 years. But he's also worked alongside musicians like David Bowie, Frank Zappa, Paul Simon, Nine Inch Nails, The Talking Heads, toured with Tool, and now is a member of the band Gizmodrome alongside Stuart Copeland from the police. I could not wait to get to know the man behind that creative brain. Where does all of this music come from? Adrian was holed up in his studio outside of Nashville, and we talked about all of it. His career, songwriting, playing the guitar, his family, his love of ice cream. And what it's like not only to be behind some of the most iconic and inspirational music, but then what it's been like to actually collaborate with musicians he inspired. He's a fascinating guy and a guy whose brain I would love to burrow in and climb around for a while. And I know that sounds creepy. He also couldn't be more personable and sweet. And I just absolutely adored getting to know him. The new live album from his band Gizmodrome is coming out on November 19th through Ear Music and it is a must listen for all prog rock fans. So allow me to introduce you to the one and only Adrian Blue.
2: And you're listening to Mistress Carrie Hi
1: everybody, this is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters And you're listening to The One, The Only
0: This meeting is being recorded. Now you've been officially told, Mr. Baloo, you are being recorded. You're on the record.
2: Got it. That's what it said. Did I, do I got it? I got it. it, You got it. I'll take my glasses off. Yours look better than mine. (laughs) Boom.
0: (laughs) How are you? It's nice to meet you.
2: Uh, Thanks. It's very nice to meet you, too. And as I just said, I love your hair. Thank you. Um, It's uh, reminiscent of my bass player, Julie
0: Slick. Purple-haired people need to stick together.
2: There aren't many of you.
0: There are not.
2: If I had the hair, I would have it purple. But as you can see, I'm uh, follically challenged.
0: Well, I'm musically challenged, so (laughs) I would take the musical ability and the baldness if I were you. Because carrying a tune and songwriting, singing, playing instruments, it's not my thing.
2: Well, you know, leave it to, to the rest of us then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you said something, actually, just as I was hitting record. I didn't know you were colorblind. That's why you asked me what color my hair was.
2: Yeah, I'm colorblind. A lot of men are colorblind. I think it's a more of a, a male thing. Uh, and I've been a painter all my, well, for, I don't know, 10 or 12 or 15 years, how many ever. In fact, you see that thing back there? I do. That's that's my first painting called Dead Dog on Asphalt. <laughs> a, a cheery subject.
0: <laughs> um, have you tried so I those want, glasses? My point was,
2: I, I, I always wonder what people think when they see my paintings, because I have no idea what they look like to them.
0: Have you ever tried those color correcting glasses? I see videos I, yeah, on every, TikTok.
2: You know, everybody talks about those. And I'm a little concerned that if I put them on, and try them out, I'll hate my paintings. (laughs) So (laughs) ignorance is bliss. I think for the moment, I'm just gonna stick with what I'm used to for all my life.
0: I was so excited when I found out I was gonna talk to you because I have been such a fan for such a long time and the artists and projects that you've worked on over the years, um, you're just such an innovator in music and you've inspired so many other artists. And then you go and put Gizmodrome together with a bunch of other guys that have the same kind of story, that have been in these amazing projects, that have inspired so many other artists. And now you're releasing a live album. I mean, do you guys want to leave some musical excellence for the rest of us?
2: Uh, Well, tidbit or two, you know, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) there's plenty out there to go around. Yeah, uh, Gizmodrome itself surprised me. Uh, Because, you know, first of all, I got a call from Stuart Copeland. That's a big surprise.
0: Which which doesn't happen to most people, by the way.
2: No, and I certainly wasn't expecting it. I hadn't seen uh, Stuart for about 20 years and only really uh, played with him one night at a special event in San Francisco. So I can't say that we were, you know, good buddies at that time. We are now. Uh, But so, you know, there were three words that that. Uh, clicked in my head Stuart copeland italy (laughs) so he said you know would you like to come over to italy and hang out and have fun and eat pasta and play on a record i said yeah of course let's do that and i went over there thinking that it was going to be a Stuart copeland solo record and i'd probably play on maybe three or four songs but Stewart tricked everyone. He got us <laughs> over there. And then his idea was, well, I'm going to I'm going to have these guys like this music so much. We're going to be a band. And after three or four days of recording, that's exactly what everyone was thinking. We, we thought this is too good. We got to stay together in place, make this whole record. And uh, and so that's the story of how we got to Gizmodrome.
0: Where in Italy was that?
2: Well, there was a really nice uh, studio from the 50s and 60s, very famous studio in Milan. So uh, we basically stayed in Milan for a couple of weeks and it was it was really fun. So we would work all day and then we'd go out, you know, as it is in in Italy, maybe 10 o'clock at night and have dinner, big, nice dinner together and tell stories and have fun and get up the next morning, go have coffee somewhere and uh, espresso somewhere and Hit the studio again.
0: That sounds like heaven.
2: It actually was, you know, that's what I was thinking about. The whole we, we were just having so much fun. It was a beautiful time of the year. I mean, I love Italy so much. My in fact, my daughter is there right now in Italy. She's her. Uh, I don't know if I could, should tell everyone in the world this, <laughs> but her boyfriend proposed to her there Aww,
0: just a few days ago. Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs>
2: Yeah, he set that up nicely, didn't he? Yeah, he did.
0: <laughs> you get you get wooed into a band and she gets wooed into a marriage.
2: Yeah. Well, after seven or eight years of being in the same relationship together, they deserve it and they're ready for
0: it. That's awesome. They even went through
2: college together.
0: Oh, see? It's, yeah,
2: see, there's still romance out there, folks.
0: There is. I just got married last August in the middle of the pandemic.
2: Well, congratulations! Thank See, you. lots of good things still happened during the pandemic. A lot of terrible things, of course, uh, but I think it also gave us all kind of the space to breathe a little bit and reassess and maybe look at our lives again. That's what I did, and I came up with a brand new record of mine, which will be coming out. And by the way, when it does, I want you to you, you and I to do another interview. Hell you yeah!
0: Are you kidding? You can come on the show anytime.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you.
0: So when you get wooed into this band now this the first record came out in 2017 so we're talking about a few years ago that your wooing to Italy happened with Stewart and then once a band releases a record it's just only a matter of time before you get lulled into going on tour <laughs> how was that because obviously that's where this live record came from
2: well, to be honest, I was really excited to go on a long tour with the band because I loved the record so much. I, I know that to support a record, you need to tour. And here we were in Italy. Um, that's not necessarily the only place you want to tour. So but what happened, Mark King, the fabulous bass player and singer in the band, had already booked a summer tour of festivals in Europe. So that kind of took the wind out of our sails. There weren't many, many places we could just go and play at such a late, you know, time. Um, Everything was kind of booked. So we, long story short, we ended up being able to play, you know, a show and two in London and a, show or two here and there and in Tokyo. And so we, we ended up playing six shows, not exactly my idea of a, a tour that supports a record, but still a record really did well and got a lot of great reviews and people loved it. So I was hoping it would go longer, but from those six shows, they called uh, this batch of material.
0: Um, can we talk about your career a little bit? Because it is. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I'm not a musically inclined person, I'm fascinated by a musician's journey. So I want to go back to the beginning with you in Kentucky and talk about where you got your first guitar. Like, did your parents give it to you? Where did you get it?
2: Well, the first guitar I ever had in my hands was loaned to me by uh, the guitar player in the band in which I was in. I was the drummer and I was sick with mononucleosis for two months and had to stay at home. So he said, well, here, I'll loan you my guitar. You know, I I wanted to teach myself to play. The first guitar I bought from a place in Erlanger, Kentucky, a local music store, I believe it was called House of Music. And I bought a Gibson Firebird because I thought they were pretty interesting looking. Nothing to do with the way they played or sounded. <laughs> I, I wasn't that advanced yet. Uh, and I think it was $180 and I paid $10 a week on it. Wow. And that was my first electric guitar. And uh, around that time, I started getting better and better. And pretty soon I found myself, rather than being the drummer in bands, I, I was called on to be the, uh, the guitar player.
0: When you're growing up, I think it's every parent's worst nightmare that your kid is going to want to play the drums from a noise perspective. (laughs) So, yes, when you're a little kid and you start showing musical ability, did your parents want to buy you drums? Well, I had
2: always had some inkling of musical ability and the fact that I could sing from a time I was a little child, and my parents were proud of that. They would show off how well I could sing, but I don't think they necessarily wanted me to be a drummer. <laughs> but uh, we moved to Ludlow, Kentucky, down a little down the river of Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was ten years old. It was the sixth grade, and I just insisted that suddenly I want to be in the school band and I, the junior high school band, and I want to play drums. And so for the first year or two. I, as I was doing it, I didn't have any drums of my own. I would just bring my marching snare drum home and play around with that. But what I did have is we lived on the top floor of my grandmother's house, the second floor. And my bedroom was right over her kitchen. This woman must have, I mean, my grandmother is a saint. There's no question about it, but we, I had a linoleum floor and, and I, I wore down three different places on the floor with my sticks playing on the linoleum floor right above her kitchen. It must have driven her crazy, but not as crazy as when they finally did buy me a a very small, cool little drum kit. And I would bring my snare drum home and there was no Tom Tom. So I would uh, rope it to a chair, turn the snare off. And so then I'd have my snare drum, my my Tom Tom, which was actually the marching snare drum and a cymbal and a bass drum. That's what I had.
0: It's not very common to be able to play those very different instruments well. And you can, and to be able to sing, it takes a certain amount of not ability, but expertise. Because I feel like those instruments would be different parts of your brain. Do you agree with that?
2: Yes, somewhat. Yeah. And I I do um, think that it's, it, it was a gift that I began as a drummer uh, because um, I have now such an innate sense of rhythms and counter rhythms and polyrhythms and so many things like that. I don't think that I would have been able to play with Frank Zappa. His music was uh, rhythmically very complex or King Crimson, in which I wrote a lot of the, the uh, music and songs, all the songs, um, if I didn't have that drummer background. Uh, The thing that maybe ties them both together is is the vocal thing, because I just never stopped singing when I was a kid. I, you know, you couldn't get me to shut up. I would just sing all the time. I loved it.
0: Did you take lessons?
2: Never took any lessons of any kind, uh, except, of course, in this marching band, I learned how to how to do cadences and things. We would play at football games and parades, Uh, but I never actually learned how to read music or got any lessons from anyone. I taught I'm, myself everything.
0: I'm a marching band uh, veteran as well. I was a clarinet player.
2: Oh, wow. I love clarinet.
0: And the word was is in there because, well, my clarinet career was very short. It was a poor choice when you love rock and roll. There's not a lot of that.
2: Well, at that time, you know, I mean, really, when rock and roll was first starting out, it was more saxophone than guitar, even. So when I came into the world of rock and roll it had transpired into guitar players so you just picked you just picked the wrong it could have been rock and roll was all clarinets and back in Benny Goodman's day that was the truth you know and that yeah. in big band music you would have been a star <laughs> <laughs> especially um, with that purple hair
0: <laughs> I have a theory about music and I want you to tell me what you think the theory is is that y- you get gifted music by the people around you when you're young, your parents, your grandparents, your older siblings, that cool aunt and uncle. And then there's a line in the sand where you as an individual discover music that you claim as your own. Can you tell me what those two music are for you? What did you get gifted? What were you listening to growing up? And then what's the first band that you remember going, okay, that's mine.
2: Okay. Well, First of all, none of my family were musically inclined on either my, my mother or father's side. No none. one. No one played a piano or anything. Um, so the music that was gifted to me is whatever was playing on the radio or television or in the movies, you know. Um, and I just happened to p- be paying a lot of attention to that. It, it, uh, but it really turned into being my music and my life. When the second week of Ed Sullivan, the Beatles were on, I missed the first week because I wasn't in tune to all that. And uh, naturally, by the second week, I knew everybody in the world had to had to see this. And that, uh, like millions of other people, changed my life. And um, I knew then, well, you know, it would be great to have, you know, girls chasing you around and make lots of money. But I really I really wanted to be able to make a record. I, I, I was always just thrilled with the idea, what goes on in the studio? How do you make a record? You know, what is that process? You know, and I just couldn't believe, you know, that you could do that, that you could just go in somewhere and out of thin air, make something that's, you know, people can listen to forever. Uh, I've lived in my, I have a studio. I'm sitting in it now. I've been in, in my studio for 28 years and that's the best gift I ever gave myself.
0: Well, this is my studio. I call it MCHQ, and I built it last year at the start of the pandemic so that um, I could control my own workspace. It's the cleanest studio I've ever worked in. In all my years on the radio, it's the cleanest studio I've ever worked in.
2: Yeah, I'm one of those uh, OCD or OCB or whatever it's called uh, guys too. And I like, uh, I can see your studio, but the thing is you do, you're right there. Your friend that you've got to, you're right there. I think you need to feed him a little more. Often. <laughs> he's a little skinny. <laughs> he's, he's skinny. Yeah.
0: Where is your studio located? Are you on the West coast or the East coast?
2: I'm in Nashville area. Uh, we have a, my place is called uh, Mount Juliet, Tennessee. It's on the Northeast side out by the airport. If you ever come into,
0: I was just Tennessee. there a couple months ago. That's why I was asking.
2: Oh, yeah, really. Well, Mount Juliet is a beautiful area. I have five acres of woods around me and a little stream. And the uh, studio takes up the entire downstairs of my home. Um, it has a guest quarters and so forth. And it's all been, you know, uh, corrected, uh, sonically corrected. So it's, you know, you can really, we've done King Crimson records here, Bears records here. We've done, we did a couple of hit songs with uh, Jars of Clay here. And so, you know, this studio has been such an important thing for me.
0: Not only that, but especially recently when everything gets locked down that you still have the ability to work.
2: Well, the problem with getting locked down is I'm not I do everything on my solo records. I have done that for many, many years, decades now. I play all the instruments and I design the artwork and everything, but I'm not a recording engineer. So I always have had my sidekick the recording engineer. And for the longest time, I couldn't uh, have that. So I just wrote a lot of material. Uh, and that was fun too. But once I finally had my, my, uh, engineer back in the studio, wow, that was, that was great. I felt, I just felt so good. You want to go back to the career anyway?
0: Yeah. Well, well, part of the reason why I want to talk about Nashville is that it comes up all the time in my interviews it's shocking to me how much rock music is getting made there now. I think for a long time Nashville just got known as a the you know a place where country music came from, but more and more all the time it is becoming this hub of not just songwriting but but rock music.
2: Oh, absolutely! Everybody on every coast. <laughs> how many ever coasts we have? Uh, has moved here now and are still moving here, even Mount Juliet, which when I moved here was pretty podunk uh is now thriving it's got traffic jams and things and uh <laughs> when i when i moved here 28 years ago i was you know my wife is from here and that's why we moved here she had a large family we thought we might have a family of our own so we should be where you know she could have she he or she we have two daughters could have uh, grandparents and aunts and uncles happy and all wife, that stuff happy
0: life isn't that what they say
2: yeah so when i moved here though i felt like a like, you know, a horseshoe and a swimming pool or something, because (laughs) I felt so out of place. It was, uh, you know, all cowboy hats, pickup trucks and country music at every service station and every restaurant. And it was all franchise things, you know, you know, McDonald's and Wendy's and nothing else much. Now it's so different, wonderfully different. Now it's very cosmopolitan. And as you say, it's really not so much just country music anymore. There's a Everybody is moving here. And I love it. But I don't really, you know, have much time to go out and, and socialize with those people. But well, A lot of them live on the other side of Nashville, uh, which is Franklin area. That's 45 minutes for me. So for me to go hang out with people in Franklin is an hour and a half drive. Never mind.
0: They better be cool.
2: They got to come to me.
0: <laughs> I mean, you flew all the way to Italy to hang out with Stuart Copeland. So... Well, wouldn't you? Yes, I would. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Plus, it's Italy. It's not Franklin.
0: Right. Exactly.
2: (laughs) Nothing against Franklin. It's really a nice place.
0: So we're talking about your career and you've had such longevity of career, which which rock and roll really affords artists, which I don't think when you start, you would ever expect this many years later to still be doing it, would you?
2: I I doubt that Mick Jagger thought he would be dancing around on stage at his age. And uh, I don't know how many of us thought much at all about, you know, what the longevity of of rock music in general would be. Um, I once I got started, I thought, well, especially once I I. Bought myself a studio, I thought, well, this is what I'm gonna do even when no one wants me to do this anymore. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna continue because I've just got this creative urge a mile wide and I can't stop myself. But yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to see people at, of my age still going out and, and touring the world and doing things. I think it's it's wonderful, but I would have never imagined that. You would think when you're 70, I'm 71. Um, Going on 17. (laughs) uh, When you think of that, you think, oh, this guy's probably sitting at home with his grandchildren and puppies at his feet. But that's not me at all.
0: And don't you think that age, like when you were talking about the, the floor above your grandmother's kitchen... Your grandmother was probably younger than you are right now, but society told you when you got to a certain age you needed to act a certain way. And I don't feel like society does that for older people anymore. That, like, I remember when I, when my mother was the age I'm at now, I looked at her like she was ancient. But
2: exactly, age
0: is so different now.
2: Well, I have never felt honestly. I, I mean this more than 30 years old in my life, because I like you just said, I always looked at my father and said, now that that man is a responsible adult, (laughs) you know, know and I just can't look at myself in the mirror and think that man is a responsible adult. (laughs) I'm more kid than I ever was. Honestly, I, I people make fun of me for being so childlike. And you know what? I'm happy about that.
0: Um, I want to talk to you about the amazing artists that you've worked with throughout your career because you haven't just worked in rock and roll. You have worked with avant-garde artists that have pushed the boundaries, yourself included, with King Crimson and all the music you've created. It's always kind of pushing what's possible and, and what people, I think, maybe think they're capable of. You mentioned Frank Zappa. Can you... To a lot of music fans, he is this otherworldly character that they've heard about. Can you talk to me about what it was like to work with him?
2: Well, I had the, uh, the wonderful opportunity to go home and stay at his house with him every weekend for about three months while we were rehearsing because that's the way I learned the parts. Uh, he would show me ahead of time. So I had a kind of a a very close and special relationship with Frank. And I just I got to really see what he was as a person. And I would just say this. If there was ever a person that's a genius, he's one. (laughs) I mean, everything he did and said just reeked of that. Not just the musical part, but uh, he was so sharp about everything. I loved uh, I loved all the way the ways he said things, just brilliant stuff that would just pour out of him all the time. And, you know, he was a taskmaster, like, you know, he wanted you to play his music. He wanted you to play it consistently, correctly and not be messed up or, you know, late or anything like that. He demanded that kind of professionalism. But as a person, he was really generous to me and very funny and kind. Uh, He wasn't like some people think, you know, cynical or whatever. No, he really wasn't. He did not do drugs at all. Some people think, oh, he must have been out of his mind on drugs. Not at all. He was very anti-drugs and was perhaps the hardest working musician I've ever known. I modeled a lot of my career after Frank. He's the one who taught me, you know, you know, put whatever music, you, whatever money you make, put it back into your your business yourself, you know, get your own studio or whatever, you know, make your own record label. I mean, that's not things that he told me, but that's the essence of what he was saying. And, um, you know, and work really hard. Of course, even though the work is a lot of fun most of the time, it's still, it's work to travel, for example, around the world. That's hard. Um, I learned a great work ethic from him. And um, he also broadened my musical horizons a lot. Of course, I could see that you could take anything you do and do it 20 different ways. So if I write a piece of music or a song, I, I, I always feel like well, I could probably do this six different ways, but this is the way I'm going to do it right now.
0: I, I feel like, like talking about those color correcting glasses, right? For people that are colorblind. I feel like there are certain people in this world that just see the world differently as a creative and I feel like Frank Zappa's one. And I feel like David Bowie is one. You've got an amazing track record of working with these people that I really do feel like they're on the same planet as the rest of us, but they're not seeing the same thing.
2: Well, I don't mean to sound the way this is sounding, but I think I'm that person, too. I, I'm not saying I'm a genius like Frank or David. No, but with I'm not the saying music that. you've I'm just made, that-
0: you don't look at it the same way. You can tell by the music you make.
2: I kind of think that my brain works differently for whatever reason. I don't know why it's wired a little differently all the way even to color blindness. I see, I see the world differently Mm -hmm. physically, but my brain is so wired to being creative. I'm everyone tells me I'm creative no matter what I'm doing. If I I eat creatively, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't I I have no way to stop it. It's just natural to me. I don't even know it's really happening. So I I don't know why that happens. And that's my my world that I have. That's the thing that I was gifted, as you said earlier. And um, when you have something like that, I think if you can follow it through and make a life of it, that's what you're supposed to do. So at the point I've been a long time now at this point where I'm just trying to do something to make the world a better place. Honestly, I mean, in my own little ways, I think music can do that. I've had enough people tell me that I, I helped them get through a time in their life when a certain record I did was really helpful to them or something that I do know that there are healing, somewhat healing qualities to making music. And, and I aim to make people you know, think a little differently, but also make them hopefully feel better.
0: It's too bad that the technology wasn't around. It would be fascinating to get you and Bowie and Zappa and all of these creative musical minds like in an MRI machine to kind of see what's (laughs) going on with your brain. Not that I want to make you a lab rat, but I'm fascinated at what's going on in your brain versus someone else's that allows you to create the music you make.
2: I am kind of a lab rat. And this is my lab right here. (laughs) I'm in here trying to figure things out all the time. Yeah, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Uh, Probably look like a bunch of scrambled eggs for all three of us guys. I think, you know, there's probably not not much logic going on there. I don't know how, how this stuff works. You're asking interesting questions and instead of, you know, what size sticks do I play with?
0: (laughs) Well, that stuff, that stuff in a lot of ways you can Google, right? But I feel like getting to know the person behind the music that we all love. And and once you kind of do that, it allows you to hear the music, I think, a little differently. You know,
2: well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, if you if you actually hung out with me for a couple of days, you'd see that I'm, you know, fairly normal person. But I have these little quirks like I I love birds. I feed birds all the time. I I eat ice cream every night. I, <laughs> I
0: have all these cream? little haagen But what flavor, Not, though?
2: Well, now this is the thing. See, Mistress Carrie, I have <laughs> my own way of of eating ice cream of course i put it vanilla haagen-dazs in a bowl and i chunk it up and i pour a little tiny bit of fat-free milk on it and a little hershey's chocolate syrup and i make a milkshake in a bowl
0: that sounds delicious as i'm
2: eating it it kind of tastes like i'm making a milkshake i've done that for 30 years
0: it sounds like you make almost like soft serve ice cream kind of
2: you don't stir it up. That's the thing. Oh. You don't stir it up. That's why I said chunk, because what ha- what needs to happen is the the milk needs to be in there with all of it as you're as gotcha. you're doing it. So you're kind of mixing it spoon by spoonful.
0: See, I knew it was going to be an interesting answer.
2: Well, there you go.
0: <laughs> I asked this question of every songwriter that I talk to because I'm so envious of the craft of of songwriting, but I don't have it myself. Um, can you give me an example of a song that you think is a perfect example of, of perfect songwriting so much that you covet it? Like you say, oh, I wish I wrote that song, but from a songwriter's perspective, I want you to break it down why you think it's good songwriting and it can be your music. It can be someone else's music, any genre, any artist, it doesn't matter.
2: Now you really got me stumped. There's so many great songs I that I, I think of. Um, You know, I would choose one of my own, uh, but to be nice about it, I'll choose something completely off the wall for you. Um, Back in the day when you before rock and roll music, even there were some great songwriters and the form of songwriting was different then because it wasn't uh, dictated by radio formats. So I would pick this song called I Left My Heart in San Francisco. And the reason I picked that one is because it it has a little intro and then it sings the theme of the song. And then it comes to, you know, a great sort of wonderful moment at the end. And it's over in about two minutes. And I think that's that's wonderful because the writer has said what he has to say in a succinct period and didn't go back and use the chorus over and over and over again. I mean, that's, that's what you do now. But back then, you know, I left my, the love millions of Paris seem somehow sadly gay. That's the intro. Then I left my heart in San Francisco. That's the middle body of the song. When I come home to you, San Francisco, a you'll go to some will shine for me. That's the, That's the triumphant ending. Perfect song.
0: I've never had a bad answer to that question. And I love your answer because it's not anything I would have predicted it to be.
2: Well, I could answer. I could give you a lot of examples. And that's just one. You know, don't get me started on uh, Lennon and McCartney. (laughs) I mean, there's so many great examples in there. And, you know, there's there's just tons of great songwriters. I always like Ray Davies, too, from The Kinks. I just think his songs are have this wonderful tongue in cheek British humor about them. And it's kind of those kind of things put around in my mind. That's what I'm always striving for, not to copy any of it, of course, but be able to say, yeah, I think I got there on, on, on you know, close.
0: <laughs> I think of rock and roll and the evolution of it as kind of like this endless race where runners are passing the baton one to the other, just pushing music forward, and you're one of those artists for a lot of rock bands now, and you've worked with a lot of artists like a Zappa, like a Bowie, that inspired artists that you go on to work with, like Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails, or you go and tour with Tool. and these are bands that were directly inspired by you. Rock music would be a very different place had you not been there. And it's fascinating to me to kind of look at it as a linear thing. What was it like working with artists that you know you helped inspire, like Nine Inch Nails or Tool?
2: Well, before I get to that, I want to say your analogy is a perfect analogy.
0: Oh, thank you. It's exactly
2: that. And maybe that's why the longevity of rock music has occurred because people keep passing it forward. Uh, with the, the people I listened to, especially when I was a teenager, that's when you're most in, heavily influenced, I believe. All the people, Roy Orbison, the, you know, the Everly Brothers, the Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, everyone, King Crimson, even. All those things that influenced me when I was young enough cr- created the urge in me to want to to move forward with that and take it to my own place. Um when I meet someone, and I, I know the guys in Tool very well, and of course you talked about Trent Reznor, that professes to you know have been influenced by me, it's like the greatest honor you could give me. It's it's better than than having a number one single or anything else, which I've not had. Uh, but it means the world to me because that's that's how I got here. You know, so it's so it's so special to me to have someone say, you know, your music made me do this. And I remember when Trent Reznor, well, he called his manager, called my manager. And and I went and worked on the first record, which which was Downward Spiral. And at one downtime moment, he said, I'm so excited because we really, we didn't, call we almost didn't call you because we thought you wouldn't, you wouldn't do this. And I was like, what do you mean I wouldn't do this? Well, you know, you played with Bowie and the Talking Heads and King Crimson. And, you know, we just thought, no, he won't he won't come and play on our record. Here's a guy who's already selling 10 million records. Yeah. And and the downward spiral, it's
0: not a little project. I mean, that's a career defining (laughs) record.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I've been on quite a few of those like Graceland or something like that. And, you know, I'm as surprised as everyone else when I get a call from, you know, Paul Simon, you want to play on my record? I'm like. Well, duh, of course, you know <laughs>
0: what what is something you know, talking about the person behind the music, right? What's something that would surprise people about these I don't know how to describe people like like a Bowie or a Zappa or a paul simon they're they're like notorious they're they're these pillars, but what's something that would surprise the average music fan? about the creative geniuses behind the music we all love?
2: Well, I know this has been said a million times, but the truth is once you're in a room with them uh, long enough, say you've worked with them for a day, maybe even a day or two or three or, you know, six months, they really quickly become just people, real people with real, you know, they eat the same sandwich that I eat. (laughs) And so it debunks all of that. But still, I always have had awe and respect to being around those people. So I try to listen more than talk and absorb what they what they're giving me more than than try to put my own thing forward to them. Uh, you get to know each other, though, and friendships always evolve from all these things I've ever done. Some of the, you know, I, I, some of my favorite people are people I've played music with, either for one record or for years, you know. And those those things develop just like uh, pretty quickly, though. I, I think in many friendships, you know, it may take you years to to form a best friendship with someone and say, oh, this is my best friend i felt that way about frank and david almost the second week i knew them like you know i and i definitely feel that way about people i've listened to when i met paul mccartney for one hour i could finish his stories for him (laughs) I, i felt like i know this guy like i've lived his life right beside him because of the music I felt like I really understood him. I know the stories. I've read all the books, seen the films. I know the whole thing, you know, when it comes to the Beatles and Paul McCartney in particular. So it's uh, it's really interesting. That whole facade kind of falls away. And all of a sudden, you're there with someone who is just so smart. They can talk about anything. Their experiences, their stories are fabulous. So it's very entertaining to, to have friends like that.
0: Is there anyone that you have on a short list that you haven't worked with that you want to, or are you just leaving yourself open to whatever possibility comes waiting for a call from Stuart Copeland from Italy?
2: Well, you know, most of the people that this goes back to what I just said a moment ago, most of the people who would excite me would be the people that uh, influenced me when I was young. So that's why, you know, you mentioned Paul McCartney, or, or I did, uh, or Ringo Starr or Ray Davies from the Kinks or the Kinks themselves. Those are the kind of people that would thrill me to work with. But I know there are also lots of other more current musicians, like, say, I don't know, um, Foo Fighters, for example. I'm not, you know, I'm not a person that listens to a lot of new music, But I know that's a great band. I know that, uh, you know, Radiohead is a great band. So there are always people out there that I I could admire whether to work with them or not is. That's a strange question, because you never know what a collaboration is going to be like until you're in the thick of it. Um, I always knew I would love to work with Pixar but once i was in the middle of working with pixar i realized whoa this is this is really something you know <laughs> this is more than i ever bargained for and, and it was a three year experience so that's what i call it like a real serious collaboration where you you have to keep your end up all of a sudden
0: well it's if not- i was
2: to work with paul mccartney i, I he'd probably he, i'd probably be the whole time thinking wow, I don't know how to keep up with this guy. You know, he's so brilliant.
0: <laughs> well, it is amazing how slowly the world of animation functions versus you could lock yourself in a room with a bunch of musicians and bang out a record in a few days if you, if you want, or at least an EP. But when it comes to working in animation, that's a snail's pace and then some with a company like Pixar.
2: Andrew Stanton from Pixar, who's, you know, done most of their movies and written them and so forth, directed them, uh, referred to it as glacial, which I thought is the, the best term for it, because yeah. you're right. From the, from the three years that I worked on the film Piper, which is a six minute short film, right? It didn't look like Piper until the last three months. Before that, it was line drawings and it was this and then it it changed into that and then it filled in a little bit more. But the actual look that you know as being Pixar look, that didn't happen until the very end because it, they, they have to, you know, they have to do all this computer stuff and they don't do it at the beginning. They do it at the end. So, yeah, and, and you're, you're right. There are so many records I've done that were just almost on the, you know, just, hey, let's make a record. OK, you know. <laughs> sit down and make a record i mean that's that's happened to me too i've, I've made records in two days <laughs> with people um so yeah it's a different process maybe that's why that seemed intimidating for the longest time
0: gizmodrome live comes out on november 19th and like you said you only got to play a half a dozen shows as the world starts to move forward in its plans next year for touring and hopefully getting to a post-COVID world in some way, shape, or form. Do you guys have plans to be able to head back out on the road and do a more grand-scale tour that maybe you were hoping for in the beginning?
2: We don't have those plans, um, but I think it's it's possible. What's happening now to me, and I think to a lot of people, is that 20-month-off period, all the plans you had were already made then. I had a whole year's worth of work You know, uh, and that's the things I'm catching up doing now. The festivals I'm playing right now with Turquoise and Jerry Harrison, where we're reliving the the 40-year-old anniversary of uh, Remain in Light, that was supposed to happen, you know, (laughs) a long time ago. So I think what we first have to do is catch up to all the commitments and things we wanted, and then we see from there uh, but recently, the, one of the concerts festivals I did was with Oysterhead, and that's Stuart Copeland, mm-hmm. of course. And he was talking about how the last time Oysterhead played together was five years before that. Five years. And I said, Good, well, now I know how long it'll be before Gizmo Drum gets to play again. <laughs> <laughs> I see what your clock is. <laughs> So I, I have high hopes for it, though. I really love the band. I love the people in it. I love the music and the songs. Some people thought that, that Stewart shouldn't have been the singer. I completely disagree. I think his, his character is what makes those songs. They were his songs. And uh, Mark and I singing the choruses as the professional singers, you know, put it all together in a unique way. So I have a lot of love for it. I, I hope it can come back at some point. I was disappointed we never got to bring it to the good old U.S. of A.
0: Well, that's that was part of why I was asking. They're predicting that next year could be the busiest touring season in the United States ever.
2: It's starting to happen that way for me right now. Um, We had another commitment we had that we we still wanted to follow through with was more of the uh, celebrating David Bowie um, concerts that I've done with before. Because it's just, you know, there's a wealth of material there. There's David Bowie. I mean, we, we did him justice and, and everyone loved it, but uh, we wanted to go further and further with it. I think we'll do some of that next year. There's probably still some more left on the turquoise watch <laughs> to, to go forward and continue that. And then there's, you know, a brand new record of mine, and I can't bring that damn record out until I go on tour. And it's driving me crazy because it's probably one of the best records of mine I've ever made I, it, for me personally. And here I am sitting on it and sitting on it and can't can't play it or release it for anyone because as you probably know, you know it would be it would you know it wouldn't serve the record right if you didn't go out and tour. That's when people become most aware of it. So I can't wait to get my thing back on tour too and so many other things so i i I think it definitely will be that's one of the things that i was um considering you know gosh everybody's going to want the gig so but i kind of think wherever on the ladder you were when they stopped wherever you were on the escalator when they (laughs) stopped the escalator that's where you start from when they started back up again so i'm not too worried about it um I'm I'm anxious to go and play a lot of shows. And having already just finished a brand new record, I've got that on my system for a little while. I don't like to go long between records, though. I've already got 20 new songs.
0: <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, before I let you go, during the lockdown, guitar manufacturers were saying that at one point they were selling like a 1,000 guitars a week, That uh, that people were just buying guitars because it was something that they could learn how to do at home. Because... What else are you going to do? Then we lose Eddie Van Halen in the middle of it. And I have been talking to so many different guitar players about their own personal style, their own personal tone. So I want to ask you that question. Where, where do you think your tone comes from?
2: From what I hear in my head. And, you know, I don't have a tone. I have a million tones, (laughs) that i'm trying to get out of my head just like the material itself it's all happening in here and i just want to give it to someone else and let them enjoy it too uh my lifelong ambition as a guitar player has just been to stretch you know completely just keep going in new directions and uh and adding to my vocabulary of sounds and effects and things that i can do and styles and trying to create new things so I believe a lot of guitar players do get a sound and they stay with that and that's their thing. And they ride that horse all the way through their career. That's not really the way I'm, I'm wired. I prefer to keep try to reinvent it all the time. So that's what I keep doing. And that's what I think is such a joy about technology. I, I'm not so good, great with technology or anything, but so, but you give me some new pedal or some new effect box and I'll I'll make something new happen with it that, and that's why I love technology
0: It was such an honor and a pleasure to get to know you today Thank you so much for making the time to hang out with me and um, you've just in you've you've been involved directly with so much music that I love but then inspired so much music that I love that when I found out I was going to be able to talk to you I was freaking out <laughs>
2: Well, I want to talk again about Elevator, my new record, when you, you get a chance. You so let me know. We'll try to we'll set that up.
0: You let me know. Uh,
2: I've got your info, I hope, here. Yeah. And and it was a pleasure talking to you. You really had a completely unique angle, and that always makes it feel good. So thank you so much.
0: I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Enjoy your ice you cream do. tonight.
2: I'll have it. It's the milkshake in a bowl coming up <laughs> around 9 o'clock. <laughs>
0: See you later, Adrian. Bye-bye. Bye. There he is, the ice cream lover himself, Adrian Ballou from Gizmodrome and King Crimson. The new Gizmodrome live album comes out on November 19th. And you can hear Gizmodrome and King Crimson and all of the other music that we talked about in this episode on the corresponding playlist that is linked in the show notes of this podcast. I do it for every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And this playlist rocks. You can also find all of Adrian's links and Gizmodrome's links in the show notes as well. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss anything from the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, and every weekday you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is all of your rock news, music headlines, and industry info. And all in less than five minutes, so it's the perfect way to start your day. Huge thanks to our sponsor, Digital Federal Credit Union. DCU does amazing work with so many veterans organizations. And with Veterans Day coming up, we should all be trying to do our part. Don't forget, you can join me every Tuesday night live on my Facebook page for my show, Cocktails in the War Room. And if you got questions, just head to mistresscarry.com. The Mistress Carry Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
1: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.